Big Man Beard Podcast. Man Beard Podcast. I'm here with the wonderful Lucy. Oh, thank you very much. And it's our pleasure to have the amazing John Stacey, founder of Mentor Links. Wow, that was quite nice. Amazing. I wasn't expecting amazing. Thank you very much for having me. You know, this one, yeah. And the wonderful, our <laughs> very own entrepreneur of Saxelby, Stuart Wishusen. Oh, thank you so much. Who's also a non executive director of Mentor Links. Oh, thank you so much. Welcome what an both. Introduction. What an introduction. Yeah, I know. Jeez. Like royalty. So busy today. Should we just end it there? <laughs> we'll get All to these it. people. And the fabulous Sal, obviously. Well, yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You can hear me. I <laughs> know, <laughs> oh, I just thought you could do with a, a nice big jazzy word. Oh, that's nice. Not so, John, mentor links, yep. uh, explain what it is and what you're up to. Yeah, so I guess the, the elevator pitch, the intro uh, of it all was um, we, I decided uh, October 2020, so during, um, yeah, just over a year ago now. During the sort of second lockdown, I think, I decided that I wanted to get involved in charity work locally for mental health. I've been working in mental health for the last few years on the side in father's mental health and kind of trying to help people using my lived experience and kind of peer-to-peer support. So I've built up a bit of knowledge, a bit of experience, a bit of contacts, and I wanted to volunteer local charities, like I said, and there was nothing. Um, I was kind of keen to help men initially, kind of specialising, and there was lots of things that were out there as I was doing my research and going around the houses but it was all kind of like not really geared towards supporting uh, male support, male peer support. So the initial idea was to bring together um, people who were like-minded, um, and this has kind of run through all the way through, sort of bringing a community together to help each other, um, initially for men, but it's grown into helping everybody now, um, very quickly actually, which is obvious, um, because it's just required to help everybody in- individually. But yeah, we started it as a CIC, so it's a community interest company, non-profit, um, and it's just morphed into loads of different weird and wonderful things since. Um, still including very much specialised male services. Um, we do online support groups. We do 12-week uh, self, uh, self-help programmes, self-development programmes. We do um, just peer support generally. So I'm trained. I'm a trained counsellor by a kind of, kind of on the side because I don't work in mental health um, for uh, a an actual reason <laughs> like I just don't want to do that daily um, I couldn't do it daily but I could always help people using my own experience so I'm a trained counsellor but from a safeguarding point of view we've done lots of different training in the team and we basically run sessions as we are just like you kind of thing that's the ethos behind it all um, yeah and I think it's going really well it's growing there's almost kind of growing too fast and um, there's lots of things where we have to remember to walk before we run um, <laughs> But we've constantly been invited to kind of be involved in lots of different things and it's just kind of trying to uh, tick all those boxes as as appropriately as possible because you don't want to do things by heart. So we don't want to do things wrong. We don't want to uh, try and do something that doesn't work. We want to make sure it works. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of describes present day how it is. And how long has it been going? So just over a year, officially. Just over a year, officially. Um, and I, So yeah, October 2020. So um, it's November today. Um, yeah. We, we got some sweets for our on the anniversary. Yeah, I was so kind. You sent some sweets. Yeah, Ooh, sent, what, what kind? Well, there's a variety actually. Yeah, Lizzie. yeah, this is perked your interest there. Yeah, um, <laughs> ranging from a uh, chocolate buttons to um, can't beat you. You've eaten them all already, haven't you? Eaten them all. I've eaten the chocolate buttons. What else was in there? <laughs> I don't know, mate. I just. Yeah, I'll well, buy myself one. Oh, Mentos! Some Mentos in there. There's some Mentos. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, well, 
There's some crisps and stuff. It was like an artisan. There's some crisps, yeah. Artisan yeah. present. It was, a, box. it was a lovely present from a relatively local company, Colleague Box. Oh, that yeah. So is that in response to some help that you've given? Or? Yes. So Stu is a non-exec director, obviously, um, and I have a group of non-execs that are fantastically helpful. Um, I also have an intern, which we've managed to pay for oh. from um, uh, graduate funding from the university, but we've kept her on and we're paying her. At, a little bit longer, um, but yeah, those that team um, essentially give up their spare time, apart from the intern who's being paid, give up their spare time to constantly support me in ideas, uh, reining me in, um, <laughs> driving me in the right way, because sometimes I have crazy ideas, which um, I think will work, but other people's you know heads on these are really crucial. Um, and then, yeah, I guess on top of that, um, just a really supportive uh, set of ears because mm. this kind of work and uh, I'm sure Stu will have lots of stories about this um, because I've blocked them all out of my memory but like, this kind of work sometimes just sends me into a way of like despair sometimes of kind of how things need to be better generally we shouldn't have to do all of this those kind of thoughts and th- things come into my mind when I'm working with people or clients I say with uh, inverted speech commas because I don't really like the word client nobody pays a penny to be involved so they're not really client but you just kind of feel like lots of things are failing people and I guess, I guess those frustrations with the board have just end up being a board that I just bounce my frustrations off and they support me and um, they're great for that. So I wanted to reward them and give them a nice little present for, Thanks, the, for the year anniversary of getting together. That's awesome. We, we, we help out. I mean, uh, the work that you've done this year with John has been incredible. I mean, reining him in is probably most of the time what we do. <laughs> I want to hear about crazy ideas. Sal always um, has a lot of crazy ideas that stem from different things. And it always seems to be a, a helicopter involved. <laughs> That's like standard practice and everyone knows that it's a Sal idea. It's just, just not a helicopter again. They just, they just come out all the time. I went, I went to, yeah, tell us, Stuart, about how you're reining John in. I don't, I, when I say reining John in, it's more about kind of the amount of stuff that he does because um, he's got a young family and he's got a full-time job and he um, has a lot of things to do and he, he pushes himself to the limit sometimes and mm. it's just about making him aware of the great stuff that he's already done. The fact that we're doing... Uh, fantastic stuff and you don't have to keep doing more and more and more um, mm. and um, I don't think we've had many crazy ideas no I think it's more crazy I mean you just smirked there so I think there might be a crazy idea that no, I've there, there is crazy ideas I think Go on, give us from, one from my perspective of being a crazy <laughs> idea I think it's an idea that I think would work and be great and often the craziness in it is you haven't got the energy and the time I think Stu's kind of answered that like, yeah. people need to stop me from doing it because it is a crazy idea unless there was three, four, five of me doing it if you know what I mean then it would be an absolutely normal idea um, slotting in a gap um, and I guess the um, flip side to it is that I need that because I get so passionate about all of this that I forget that I need to look after myself and I need to make sure that I'm cooking you know, on gas and that my cup's filled or whatever phrase you want to use otherwise all of these crazy ideas if I was using every minute of every day they would go down terribly and they would not help anyone. So it needs to be a walk before you can run. It needs to be put me on a leash and tell me where the best way I can serve it in the right timing is. And that's where these these guys come in really well um, because they can sit there and see it from the outside. They're not doing it all, which I never wanted them to do. They're volunteers. They, want, they, do, they do wade in. They do put their hours in sometimes, but when they can. And often I think that's the subconscious side of it. You know, I look at these guys... And I go, they've got full-time jobs, families and stuff too. And they're not doing as much as me. Yes, it's my company, but 
they could be doing as much as me, but they're not because they're realistic. And that kind of makes me go, stop, like, calm down, slow down a little bit. So, yeah, it's good to have them around. Is it easy to fall into a trap of doing 10% of the 10 things? Yes. So you've got all these great ideas yeah. where you're thinking, <coughs> excuse me, born out of frustration, possibly, that you're working with, like you say, inverted commas clients, mm. and you're seeing a gap, uh, I say a gap in the market where... Mm there is not enough funding or support for them, mm. you feel that they're left, um, left out, and then you go, oh, we could do this. Yeah. And then you go and speak to someone else, and you go, oh, we could do this. Yeah. And before long, you've yeah. got six or seven things on the go, and that's where you step in, Stuart and the team, going, right, yeah. two of these are valuable, the rest, let's park them for now. Is that the kind of... 100%, yeah. So I love that phrase, and it's actually one I've used a lot. I've heard it on a podcast ages ago, um, but I absolutely fall into that trap 10% of 10 things it's not good enough and it's momentum more than anything it's positive momentum momentum comes from so many people seeing what we're doing and going we want you to help us as well and and I'm going yeah okay like, like a little <laughs> lap dog going please please I want to help you as well um, and you know it's like it isn't I, I'm not going to be able to help these people because I'm actually already doing all of this you know what I mean so it's kind of like yeah it's just a reality check um, and it's a great reality check. It's not a negative in any way. And I had to get my head around that quite quickly. I think six months or so in, maybe three or four months in, you know, I was getting frustrated because these guys were telling me to stop and chill out. And then I realised, no, this is this is this is perfect. This is exactly what I need because this is reality. I've gone crazy onto this sort of weird, obscure alternate reality where I've seen I've helped one person, and that's kind of ramped up, and the momentum's gone crazy. So. Um, yeah, it's just trying to rest on the laurels and make sure it's not. Over the Two things that we've done really well, and John, and with the help of the um, with the non-execs, is uh, speakeasies, which you've, you've mm. taken on yourself. Speakeasy, what's up? So speakeasies are online talking group on Zoom, and it's a men-only thing, and it will remain men-only, but we'll also do. Um, we'll so we'll keep them siloed, but in the future we definitely want to open it up to everybody and do separate all people speakeasies. Um, but the speakeasy was just set up to um, be something slightly different to male sort of talking groups in that they can be completely anonymous. There's no requirements. So a lot of the male talking groups that are out there, um, peer support groups that are out there, they require full sign up. They require, you know, you've got to sort of have name badges and everybody's got to sit in front of each other. And OK, that's great because it does force people, force is a harsh word, but it does force people to sort of open up into that. And it can be really useful. This is... A confidentiality agreement which you sign and I know your name from then onwards you don't need to tell anyone your name you can have a pseudonym you can come on the zoom without a camera you can come on with no microphone just use the chat box we actually had someone for a while doing that and after six weeks of them doing it they're now using the microphone and the camera and I've met the guy you know so it works and essentially they were fortnightly they got really busy now they're weekly so they're every Tuesday night 7 p.m. I stick on a Zoom now, and it's gone so well that there's like a nice little community there. So I stick it on, and if I'm busy, I go, right, guys, I'm leaving you to it tonight. And they go, cool, all right, okay. And they'll just chat to each other. Even if there's new guys there, they're all just like welcoming the new guys, and they don't really need me anymore. It started off like I was kind of, I got a bit carried away, and I remember Stu and, and a few other people like waded in um, to help out. And I remember the early speakeasies were me just talking, me mm. just going... We just going right. What you want to do here is, if you've got this problem, is you want to do this, 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 and this, and trying to like save everybody. And then I quickly realised to think about four or five speakeasies in that if I'm talking, I need to be talking from my experience only. I don't need to be a therapist. This isn't a therapy chat. And then on top of that, actually, if I just sit and listen, that's all these guys want. Um, so that 
that's what it's become now, and it's what it was it's always great. meant to be, and it does work really well. Um, so little, you call it a little family now, don't it you? It is a little family. They all it's text lovely. me, message me all the time, and um, they all know each other. Um, some of them talk between each other. Some of them have helped other people, so outside of the group. So there's a really great guy um, who uh, has severe OCD, um, and part of his recovery and part of his management is he always wants to help people with OCD. So um, someone came my way really struggling with their OCD, I sort of spoke to him on like, like first and said, would you mind helping this guy? Then I spoke to the other guy and the guy was like, would you mind me putting you in touch with someone who has severe OCD? So a lot of what Mentor Links does is that, like put people together that would help each other. They went for a coffee. The, what, the guy who comes to speakeasies gave him a load of books, gave him a load of different sort of guidance and that guy's thriving now because he's had this support from someone else going through it. He thought he was alone, thought he was crazy and weird and he's really not. He's got someone there who he knows he can call on. So that's just one example of those kinds of things that have just been really amazing. And where would someone find the information for this? So it's all over our socials and our website, but the website is where you can sign up um, because obviously you do need to fill out a confidentiality agreement. That's the only thing we ask to do. Once it's done, you never have to do it again. Once it's done, you get the Zoom details. You never have to, uh, you don't get new details, it's the same details every week. So you literally sign up, you get the details, and you can come whenever you want. You don't have to come every week, come whenever you want. But it's on the website every Tuesday night. Go onto the event page at the top and sign up. We'll put a link to the website in the description of the uh, yeah, podcast. Amazing, yeah, thank you. So you've got the speakeasies, creating yeah. a safe space for people to talk peer-to-peer. Mm. What are the other activities that you're involved in? And leading? Dads and Lads is probably the, the biggest, biggest one. Yeah, yeah. Second, second biggest one. So Dads and Lads is an NHS-funded, uh, LPFT-funded uh, programme with Active Arena, with Dan Hone, who's also one of our directors uh, at Arena. Uh, big up Active Arena. They've been really helpful. Um, so he got body of funding for suicide prevention years ago and it's still going through different group, uh, different waves of funding. Part of that funding was to help men um, and we designed Dads and Lads to be all men. The reason it's called Dads and Lads is not to bring your son, it's for dads and those without sons, uh, without, without kids, so Dads and Lads. And basically it's a, every Friday night but we, we, we are changing the, the date for the third cohort. We've had two cohorts or one and a half cohorts are in the second cohort as we speak. And essentially every week Friday night, 7 o'clock till 8, you play a bit of footy. Everybody plays a bit of footy for an hour. Um, if you're injured, we still say come. You know, come and sit on the side and just, just heckle everybody. That's what I do because I don't play. There's a reason behind that. There's a long story behind that, but I don't play. Um, and then uh, 8 till 9, it's a 12-week, um, week-by-week self-development, self-development program. But the program isn't intense. It's deliberately not intense. It's very base-level, introductory stuff. And by stuff, without giving too much away... It's just opening your mind to how your mind is. That's all it is. Um, so it is using a bit of theory, a tiny bit of science, but generally week in, week out, there's a massive part of each of those hours where it's just checking in with each other and chatting and another safe space to find out about each other, to relate to each other, reflect on the week uh, that's gone by. Um, we bring in external speakers to talk on specialist stuff. So we've had someone come in, a psychologist come in, a friend of mine who works in York, he's talked on anger because anger's a big man thing, of course. Um, talk on anger and anger management we've had someone come in and talk about emotional intelligence recently um, a local guy who's just phenomenal um, so he's come in and talked about that um, and it's just kind of it's always steered by the group so this cohort's actually very different to the first cohort so the 12 weeks are planned out in pencil I, I call it and it just changes all the time because we sit down those first few weeks get to know each other and you just realise there's some key things that you can actually delve on for the next 10 weeks 9 weeks that you don't need to do the rest, like they're not. It's not important. And for example, this cohort we're in right now, um, compared to the last cohort, 
there's a massive thing in every single one of these people coming from a well diverse range of backgrounds where they all overthink they all constantly overthink so that's mm. been the basis of everything we've been doing i have been trying to thread in some of the science some of the theory mm. but around overthinking um and actually just kind of relaxing on that a bit more and so i mean again I don't, I don't want to sound like I can blow my own trumpet, but I got a message the other day. We had to cancel the other day because of COVID and a few illnesses. So we pushed it back a week. One of the guys was messaging me who uh, was ill and he was telling me about how he'd been using the techniques I've been teaching him with his team at work. And he'd become this like really holistic, helpful manager that he never thought he could become. And this is a guy who's an extremely experienced manager. He's been doing this job for a long time. He'd noticed over the last few years he'd had a bit of a weird staff turnaround and people were leaving quite quickly and moving on and he didn't think it was because of him and he doesn't now, he's not blaming himself, but he realises he can be a lot better manager to retain his staff. Mm. And he's starting threading in some of the stuff mm. that I was telling I was nearly crying That's when he was texting me. I was like, That's, That's unbelievable. That That's awesome. incredible. In terms of it touches on a point, how do you measure success in what you're doing? Yeah, so honestly, one of the things I was really keen to stay away from was data and kind of reflective data of what we're doing but we still do and we have to especially if it's funded so Dan has people come out and do metrics around dads and lads for example so they'll do um, you know feedback forms they'll do stuff like that and we take feedback we, we, we're always happy to have feedback as far as kind of I guess kind of the reason I don't want to use data hmm. is because every other service out there does and they reflect on their data to steer what they do and that's right in so many businesses and so many scientific, technical areas of industry, I get it, that's how I work in my day job. This, for me, and this is still the case because we're only a year old, I am very much in a place where there's, there's so much missing from the area of mental health in Lincoln and Lincolnshire, so much where you have people and helping each other in the community you have GPs, psychologists, therapists, and the long waiting list between that. There's such a big gap here for so many different angles of different people that need support. Prisons, young people, you know, we're doing a schools project, which I'm happy to talk about as well. Um, the people in addicts and stuff like that, we, we try, and this is one of the things I've reined in, we were trying to work with the addicts uh, groups and uh, uh, called We Are With You, which is used to be Ad Action. There's so many different groups, there's so much required for peer support and community support, for me right now, there's no point in, in data in putting data behind it. Let's just do as much as we can, almost kind of forget about the data until we absolutely get to a point where we need to properly steer what we're doing. Effectively, what we've done so far needs to carry on. It doesn't need to stop. There's nothing that's indicating that we've done this wrong, that it's, you know, if anything, it just can be keep, keep, keep being tweaked and keep being improved. And there's so much more missing. There's no point at the minute to stick data behind it, if you ask me. But I'm always happy to be corrected, and if people ever give me a robust reason to stick behind it, I would. That was an interesting view of, mm. uh, of, of that. So it's almost the jigsaw. There's yeah. so many more pieces to put in before I need to reflect on yeah. it. Yeah, and I did think about it really early on. I did think about how am I going to report back on it. Si, one of our directors, was very open about this. And yeah. It was like, yeah. you need to reflect. You need to. Everything you do almost needs to be, do I do this again every week? And I was like, no. And I pushed back on it. I was like, not at the minute, because actually it's developing. And it's a slow burner. It all is going to be a slow burner. Getting people to talk is a slow burner. That, that's what this is all about, getting people to talk, communicate. Empowering that communication, giving them a platform, giving them a safe space, but also showing them the power. So empowering them to speak, but showing them the power in speaking so that they go away and carry on. 
that is what it's all about and that doesn't need to have data behind it at no. this point it's, it's too small to have that quantitative data and that qualitative data that we get yeah some of the feedback we've had has been absolutely fantastic and it's more than enough even if it's a handful it's more than it's enough. about capturing that subjective nature of yeah. it as well isn't it i always so, see these stats you watch uh, good morning telly or whatever it's called and they'll go, you know, 34% of men yesterday felt suicidal. Yeah. And I'm thinking, who's filling in the form? <laughs> who's suicidal? Going, do you know what? I'm going to fill in this form because that'll yeah. solve me. You know, I'm thinking, where do they get that data from? Well, this yeah. is, this and what's the validity of it? Yeah. Surely it's well, such a subjective to- topic. And if people, I think someone said this to us before, mm. if people aren't talking, then it's not representative of the... Exactly. That's what I was going to say. When I was working in Father's Mental Health, there was a thing we always used to run out. Postnatal depression is a really good example of this, right? Postnatal depression stats um, show that 50% of partners, so this is dads, uh, non-bi- non-birthing partners, dads, grandparents, whatever it is who's helping the mum who's given birth, 50% of uh, partners suffer from postnatal depression if, they're, if the birthing partner has postnatal depression, right? We know, and there's, there's, there's subjective data that isn't proper data, which is the most frustrating thing, that's a lot higher, a lot higher. So what's the point in it? When I first started talking about father's mental health and I was doing keynote speeches for Public Health England, I shouted about the data because all the doctors and all the senior people, oh, well, the data suggests this, the data says this about dads, the data says this about... Because dads aren't telling you about it. Because dads won't tell you about when they're struggling. They won't open up about it. So if you're saying 30% are struggling, I can tell you right now it's at least 70, 100%. Like, and I, if anything, it's probably all of them, <laughs> like with the small percentage not struggling. So the data's bollocks. Yeah, and this is, this is the thing. With mental health, I get why there needs to be a science around funding and you know, siphoning. And this is, this is another reason why we do it the way we do it. We don't rely on any money. We can get grants, we can get sponsorship, we can have money come in, but because we're a business, it's all taxed. The revenue stream that we have is supporting people. So we go into businesses, we go into people who have the pot of money and already spend the money on, can I swear on this pot? Of course you can. On wanky bollocks national speakers who do it for a job and come in and talk absolute bollocks to their staff, and we say, pay us to do those training sessions, We'll, we'll charge you less, and actually we'll sit with your staff first and we'll go... Okay, what do you actually want? <laughs> what do you want to learn? Forget the tick box. Forget the unconscious bias, mental health awareness tick box. What do you actually want to know about? What are you struggling with right now? And we'll run a session on that for the same price that wanky bollocks Joe Bloggs will do, go around the country saying the same shit to everybody and not give a shit about your staff. Yeah. That's where the money comes in. That money goes back to the, the groups that we run. Mm-hmm. But essentially most of the stuff we run is free and it doesn't cost a lot because we've got... So how do you support. fund yourself? Other than, I uh, presume the example there was some company or organisation has a pot of money to do X, you put your bid or tender in to say, we'll do this for you. What about everything else? Mostly pyramid schemes. (laughs) Tequila. um, um, Money laundering through uh, tequila brands. Really early on, we had a massive grant from Lottery, National Lottery, because National Lottery are amazing. I'm sure you know about their funds. And we put a really simple bid together and... Pretty much what I just said to you just there. There's nothing in Lincolnshire. This is what we're hoping to do. And we put a little price list together. They don't. They didn't check. They haven't checked. Hopefully they won't check here and this. But um, the money basically did go to what we were putting it down to. But we've, we've, we've obviously spent it. We've gone off on a little few tangents here and there. But that is a nice big pot of money that we're still working through with regards to what we're, we're spending on for certain things. Um, but most of most of what we run doesn't cost. doesn't cost a penny. It's, I always say to people, the way this is set up, the only person who loses out is me. Because I give up my time for free, no one gives me a penny. 
and I'm giving up my extra time, my spare time. Um, and it'll always be that way. And that sounds really bad, like I'm sort of like hammering myself, um, but it won't be because I have people like Stu and, and my wife and other people who rein me in and stop me from making it hammering myself. So um, people have spare time, people have hobbies. Mm. I mean, I just say this is one of my hobbies. I was going to say, you're clearly obviously you know, passionate about it and yeah. you care about it and that's why you do it. It's not a labour labor of love, would you call it that? If it was my job, I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't like it. And I'll tell you why I wouldn't like it, and this might sound really naive and weird. I don't want people to pay me to help them. Yeah. I, never, I never want that. I know that there's people out there that do it, and I have no problem with those people, unless I have a big problem with charlatans who don't actually help people and just say the same old shit every time. Um, when people are connecting, and you know, great counsellors, great therapists, great psychologists, this is why I only work with the people I work with, because I've sort of vetoed them and got to know them and know their work. When they're great, you should pay them millions, but it should never be the end user that pays people. And this is a big bugbear of mine. If you can afford it, great. If you can mm. afford it, fine. You know, I, I should always tell people, if you can afford a therapist, absolutely. If you can't afford it and it's coming out of money that should be going somewhere else in your life, that's what kills me inside, that people can't access that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I would never want pain, genuinely. It sounds weird. I would never want pain and putting it in my pocket. And it's just because it's a good thing. And... <laughs> This might sound really wishy-washy that I'm trying to make myself out to be some sort of angel. The reason is, is actually completely the opposite reason why I, why I feel that way. I never had any help. Mm. never had one bit of help all my life. And up until late 20s, I didn't realise that there was anybody out there that would help me if I asked. I thought that no one wanted to... I thought there was no such thing as community. People didn't want to help each other. I thought everybody just pretty much hated each other and just... You know, you only liked your mates, you know what I mean? No one cared about strangers. And I had my eye opened by a great counsellor that I was forced to go to because I didn't want to go to it. And um, the counsellor wasn't helping me. He made me realise I was helping myself by talking to him. And that's when it just went mind blown. And at that point I thought, I don't want to ever earn any money for this. I don't want to put profit away for this. I just want to make people have that mind-blowing moment where they can find something else or do something for themselves like I did. And that's all it is. If it was high-level psychiatry and psychology, all right, look, you, you need to go to a uni for that kind of stuff. Like, Just pay those people because they're the real boffins. But this is peer support and community support. We should all be helping each other for free. Yeah. Don't see the point. I think it's a great message. We should all be helping each other for free. Yeah. Wow. Within your boundaries, within your own remits, and within your own metrics of money that you have, why aren't we helping each other in the street? You know, why aren't we helping each other in the community? I've never understood that since I had my moment, if that makes sense, of, of learning about myself and realizing mm. I've never understood it. And, and looking back, I, I, you know, I feel I've got past it, but I've felt shame about the way I was before. I've got past that shame. I've got past it because I, I don't believe in keeping shame. And that's a big part of what I deliver. And Stu knows this because he's sat through some of the sessions. But, you know, you shouldn't sit with shame. Um, and I've got past that. But I have felt shame about the way I was in the past. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's, that is a natural thing. And, you know, I have actually turned away from helping people. I've actually said, no, no, I'm more, I'm more important. And you should always have that first priority being yourself and those nearest and dearest to you. But there's no reason why that first priority is there. And then the second priority is miles away. The second priority should be as soon as you can help people. Um, so yeah, I feel very strongly about that. So in terms of, you talked about some of those frustrations 
and some of the uh, almost explaining some of the drive behind you. Mm. What can we do about those fundamental gaps that are out there providing people support? Yeah. Is there something we can do about it? Yeah, yeah, honestly, there is. And and this is something. So when I when I was going around the charities, when I was going around trying to volunteer, I had a conversation with one of the charities who was very helpful but had no work for me. And they sat down and they explained the grant process, the way that money comes from the government, the way that people are supported in the community, and the way peer support works. And I was sickened. I was sickened by the fact that we have to sit there waiting for money and lobby for money and push for money from a government that doesn't seem to care. And I say doesn't seem to care because I don't know these people, but everything we hear about is that they don't seem to care, right? Mm. So I'm giving them benefit of a tiny bit of doubt here. But I said to myself, right, how can we circumvent this system? And honestly, the shortest answer to your question, Sal, is exactly what I've just been talking about. Do whatever you can to just help each other. If you're doing community work, peer support, just talking to people about uh, your uh, time, your past experiences, but also on the flip side, sitting and just listening to people and giving them a space to talk. You know, this is horrible adage, men don't don't want to talk. They do. You sit in a room and they do bloody want to talk. I'll tell you something. every man I've come across wants to talk they just want that opportunity to be listened to and they feel for whatever culture they haven't been listened to so they don't feel like they can be listened to but honestly the way that we can get past this kind of like massive disconnect from government funding and the way things should be in the system is to just do it ourselves and there is so many ways you can and somebody said to me a while ago okay so if you ramp up this and a community's helping each other and they're setting up these centres and there's got therapists in there and everybody's helping each other blah 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 because that would be an ultimate amazing goal right they're going to go you let the government win then haven't they because then they don't have to fund anything they're going to sit back and go oh we'll fund other stuff we'll put money in our pockets do you know what my answer to that was so fucking what Yeah. because people are being helped Mm. who gives a fuck what the government are doing they're not going to stop it (laughs) They won't stop it, because if they stop it, then we'll rain hellfire down on them, because we've put so much work yeah, into this yeah. without them, without them, and that's the key. And I think as long as that's in the background, as long as people are in, the right, in it for the right, right um, reasons, that will happen eventually. I have real belief in that. I think everyone, everyone in this room right now has got a powerful story, and we know how powerful our story has been for other people. And talking openly and honest about our own mental health journey has an amazing effect and if, if that's all we can do and be open, then it's certainly something I've learned since I've been on my journey. But you say that's, if that's all we can do, it's fucking huge. Mm, it's yeah. huge. And it's not, it's not all we can do because it's actually in a math, you know, what you found, Stu, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. No, go for it. But I've, I've seen naturally in you how uh, connected you are to people just by telling them a brief snippet of your story. Mm-hmm. You see their eyes light up, you see their ears prick up because they, they can relate to some of the stuff you've talked about. That was our conversation. Yeah. When we first met and spoke about our situations, I've never felt, well, I have numerous times, that's a lie, but when I had that conversation, I was like, this guy has been through the same as me in just mm. a total different way. And it's like the connectivity just automatically brings that safety, that exposure, that acknowledgement that we're all... We're all very different, but all very much the same. And we all have that same capacity and that same opportunity. And that's a big thing. We have an opportunity. So you're playing it down by saying it's all we can do. It's a massive thing to be able to do it. Don't you think most people want to be part of something bigger? Yeah. And by building that relationship and speaking to each other and creating the wonderful spaces and safe spaces that you have, Mm -hmm. 
it promotes people to actually share. Mm. And once they share, the problem yeah. can start to be uh, broken down and solved. Yeah. And I think the one thing we learned on our journey, because when we started, we wanted to do, we had a very clear vision, we wanted to do four things. We wanted to raise awareness for mental health and support. We wanted to raise funds for great organisations. We wanted to create safe spaces and we wanted to sign people, mm. signpost people to help. And the bit I thought was the most important thing was raising money mm. because that's what the, it needed. It needed money because all you heard in the media was there's no funds for mm. this. There's no funds for this. Mm. Yeah. And what we learned was that's the least impactful. Yeah. Mm. That actually it was nothing to do really with selling the shirts and that. That was a way of raising money. Mm. But it was the other stuff that was that we've got was people opening up, people saying, I've heard of you, yeah, I've started to speak about my mental health. Mm. And that was the part where us when we were trying to gauge feedback of are we on the right track? Are we not? We where are we going? And then we got a few messages from people who mm. sent us some nice voice messages that said, you know what, you helped me today. Yeah. All I did was put on your jumper and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, and it was deal. that kind of stuff. And you're thinking, actually, you've touched on a good point. The problem isn't necessarily funding. No. The problem's creating those spaces and looking after each other. Yeah. yeah. And if we can do that, mm. I guess it's that kind of prevention v cure. Yeah, hundred percent. And pre- prevention. This is this brought me on really. This brings me on really nicely to uh, what came next for us, basically. So we started the idea of, and I think that's when we spoke actually, Sal. Um, the two pronged attack we were going to have was to create these um, spaces, but also have that signposting thing, which you guys were really influential for me on, and how we do that. So thank you for that. Um, so we've got our support hub on our website now, which is re- we really like, and it's another place where people can find things simply. But it made me realise there needs to be another step. And that step is what I now call the three pillars of mentor. So you get that community, you get the open space, you get them feeling comfortable. But some people will hit a wall at that point and they'll, they'll and this is where I my personal story came in. About a year into my journey, which is a horrible word to say, but it's the only word to describe <laughs> a year into my journey with mental health. I had a mass I was going crazy high with everything I was learning about myself. And I had a massive low out of nowhere, massive downturn, because I felt like nothing was happening. Like, it was just, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm learning all this new stuff, and actually, I'm not really changing, and there's nothing really happening. And I did loads of soul-searching, loads of training, and I spoke to a lot of different people around, like, kind of coaching areas and things like that. And um, I developed the Three Pillars of Mentor, which is basically a step-by-step process that every human being in the world either goes through subconsciously in their life at some point, which you'll recognise when I tell you about it, or needs support in doing so, right? Needs support in doing so. So the first thing is self-awareness. Self-awareness in everybody is just key. If you are unaware of yourself, and I know we could wax lyrical about all of this, you're literally going to stay the same, and if you are in a negative place, be in that place for a long time. So the self-awareness piece is a huge piece, but actually that can fluctuate over time. You can have be more self-aware or less self-aware, but once it's there and you're comfortable with it, you move on to the self-acceptance piece. And that's where you realise that self-acceptance isn't just, um, you know, I am now accepting of the way I was. It's accepting of me in the present moment, of everything good, bad and ugly about myself. Mm-hmm. And that means that you sit there when you have a bad day or you say something or you snap, and you go, I know why this has happened, because I'm aware, I'm self-aware. And I know if I, I know what I can do to learn from it and adapt it, or I know that I can put it in the bin and move on. So that self-acceptance is quite a big 
hard part. And basically, to quantify it a little bit, the people I work with, and Dads and Lads is a good example of this, I always say to them, by the end of the 12 weeks, you'll be midway through the second part, probably, and the rest of it's down to you. But the third part, the third part is personal growth. And personal growth is something that everybody should always want to do every single day, no matter what age, no matter what life you lead. You could be a billionaire or you could be on a dole. You should always want to be a better person. And this isn't a wishy-washy thing I'm saying now where it's like, oh, you know, I really like these climate activists. They're doing a great thing. I'm going to be more like them. It's not a comparison thing. It's not a comparison piece. Personal growth is that self-acceptance of what's good, bad and ugly about yourself, the awareness of what you what you already are and what you've become and your past before and how you can use them both as tools to develop what you want to become and that can change again every day like I have changed the person I am now you know in flux basically over the last eight years when I've been going through my journey because I thought I wanted to be x and actually I wanted to be y and that might I might go back to being x you know in the future it's like and that's where the acceptance comes in and the awareness so it's a fluctuating three-stage process but you want, you should always want to grow. And every single person I sit down to, and I talk to them about the three pillars of mentor, when it gets to that point, and I explain what I mean by growth, because it is a bit of a wishy-washy statement, they go, well, yeah, actually, <laughs> like the reason why I'm watching this video about the three pillars of mentor is because I'm not happy. I'm not happy with myself. And it's not about beating yourself up. It's about wanting to grow and wanting to be a slightly better person. Open your mind to something different and moving forward. Um, so essentially, yes, community and helping each other and peer support telling stories great the next step of that is how we can sort of do that basic you know three pillars moving into life and then letting people thrive do you think there's a cultural barrier to self-help and growth um in terms of the way our society works and schools work your you go through school you learn to try and get a better job and Mm -hmm. blah blah and then you're into society and you're put into whatever box you're put in and go through. Where if you look at, say, the um, North American societies, if you go to a bookstore there, if you go to a bookstore in the UK, the biggest part you'll see is fiction or autobiographies. If you go to a bookstore in America, the biggest section by far is self-help. Mm. And self... Mm-hmm. And they've got a big culture for that type of yeah. constantly trying to improve. We don't really have that here. No. Is that going to be a barrier or can be a barrier? Because... We're kind of taught in some ways in our society to settle. Suck it up and stiff mm. up a lip. And yeah. Settle. yeah, just settle for it, you yeah. know. I've never thought about that. I think there is. I think there is um, in a British, the British way. Um, but I, I also think that culture is something I fight a lot. Um, and I, I don't mean fight it negatively. I mean, like, fight to embrace culture a bit more. And I think modern people, um, if you want to talk generations and you talk probably younger than ourselves... Um, they are more open to all cultures than mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. They don't even realise they are. Um, yes, there are barriers because the education system is still in the Victorian times. Yes, there are barriers that you will get 50-60% of teachers who are stuck in that way and uh, they are the peers, they are the people who are driving these young people forward. Certainly with the work I've done in the schools project that I've done, you know, what I've noticed is that those teachers who really do want to open the, the children's minds, they are fighting against parents. They are fighting against the parents' barriers. And this is something that's crucial and huge that I wish I could shout from the tallest mountain in the world to every single person in the world. You are not your children and they are not you. So why are we trying to reflect generationally each way way through life and sort of 
bring people through the same way. And this is where culture happens and where culture struggles. Culture is a, is a thing of flux anyway. It needs to grow and change, right? We all know that. You can sit back and look at all these different cultures and go, well, that's different to that. The way that it doesn't um, have numbers, the way that some cultures don't have numbers is because of stifling generational problems. And, you know, the male piece, the British male piece is such an obvious one to use as an example, but generationally I'm a, I'm a product of that and a problem of that because the reason I took till, till 27 to really open my mind to it is because of the way my dad and the way my male peers when I was younger treated me. Mm-hmm. You know, non-emotional connection. Um, not supposed to be sad, cry, because I'm a bloke. Um, not supposed to even really acknowledge happiness because actually if you're happy, you're arrogant. And you're sort of telling everybody that you're ace if you're happy. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you develop this sk- thick skin, this mask, this suit of armour, whatever you want to call it. And that's detrimental to your growth, detrimental to your awareness, de- detrimental to your acceptance of who you are as a human, which is a completely fallible person and a wide emotional spectrum. And essentially, if you can live like that, and there are people who can live very happily like that. They are. I know them. Great. <laughs> There'll probably come a time in those people's lives where they'll be struggling to attach to something and they won't even know why. Yeah. And that's the sort of sad thing. Um, right. And they can literally go, oh, my dad was like that. And there's their answer. <laughs> you know, yeah. So the generational culture is a big problem. Yeah. Just, just having a think about that, and it's, it's something you guys, uh, Big One Beard, have talked a lot, and, and John, about kind of you go through life and there's this obsession with kind of ticking the box of how old you are. Mm constantly talking to people who feel like they're off to university because the education system or the culture has said that they have to and then once you get into university how dare you not do something with your degree obviously coming back from my own experiences or how dare you go traveling or or whatever and if you haven't owned your own house by 25 or you haven't got married and had kids by this then you're you're some sort of failure and I think Mm. that whole that whole tick box all those stepping stones that people feel like they have to follow just gets in the way of personal growth because yeah. you don't focus on personal growth you see success as whatever the rest of the culture and community sees you mm-hmm. and yeah. that's that's wrong and that's that comparison thing i was talking about and actually we can break it right the way down to the basics so every single person in this room every single person in the world at some point will compare themselves to somebody else the majority mm-hmm. of the time you're subconsciously comparing yourself to your parents or your teachers or people of authority you don't even know you're doing it the more you can strip that back, the more you can do it less. Mm-hmm. It's never, you're never perfect. <laughs> I still do it, you know what I mean? But the more you can do it less, the more you can be open to making a choice. Making your own informed, opportunistic choice in life. That's all it is, and that's all I'm trying to do and empower people to do. It's funny to say that, John. I mean, when I grow up, I want to be Sal. So. <laughs> <laughs> I always say I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> you said yeah. that this is a, this yeah. is a yeah. genuine yeah. story. I have no idea. And maybe my friend old French t- teachers listening but her son because oh, I, I used so. to play basketball mm-hmm. at a reasonable standard and her son wrote in his ROA that when he was older he wanted to be like me <laughs> <laughs> she went mental as you would and there's a difference between um, although I was oh, joking about obviously I want to be like so in a modern I mean that goes without saying <laughs> But um, you can still aspire and, and, and be inspired by people. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, but it's it, the comparison is, mm. um, is, is, is not is good and not useful. No, and it's a fine line between comparison and inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's a real fine line. And you've got to learn that skill. And this is something that is probably a plethora of things that we need to write out and manifest into life. But it should be something that young people are taught quite early. Mm-hmm. Look, 
social media, stop comparing yourself to people on there unless they're a positive influence and an inspiration to something that you want to become. Yeah, the word inspiration's overused now, isn't it? And, and it's, it's you look at leadership it? and you look yeah. at that. There are far too many people who people say are inspirational there. Uh, but about to Lucy's comment though about uh, what you want to do when you're older. I mean, it's like um, it's that that's the whole um, subject, isn't it? Because it's you, you are who you, you. All you can do is do what you think is right at that time and be yourself. And if you're doing that, then it you you can't aspire to be anything because you're already doing it. You're yeah, already yeah. Being. If you're if you're it's being like, yourself, you've nailed it. Yeah. Ta-da! Finished. Really, I've got a really, I've got a really good answer. Clean it. Some, somebody asked me on a somebody asked me on a fatherhood podcast. What advice would I give my daughter? Um, you know, if she took advice right now, she's three. <laughs> what advice would I give my daughter before she was born or whatever it is, like for the future, knowing what I know now? And you know, all the the, the normal stuff came flying to my head. The regular stuff. Oh, you know, you know, be good to other people, all that kind of thing. Um, and I sat there for about thirty seconds. It must have been a bit of a dead silence in the podcast. And I said, I want to think about this. I want to make sure it's decent, and I want to word it right. But I have thought about it already. And essentially, my answer was to constantly question herself in the right way, in the positive way. And what I mean by that was she should always be wanting to uh, be open-minded enough to ask herself, is this who I am now and what I'm doing now, what I want to be tomorrow, next week, next month, and just constantly feel comfortable and happy and confident in that questioning mode. Mm -hmm. There are so many kids, and I meet them all the time, and I was one of them, who... You felt you couldn't question the norm. You couldn't question the culture. You couldn't, you know. I was playing football high level. I didn't want to. I didn't want to play football. I was at a high level. I didn't want to play football. I knew I didn't want to play football. I just couldn't mm-hmm. put it into words. Mm-hmm. And it was all because my brother failed and he was better than me. So I, I knew at the time I was only really doing it to sort of tick a box. Yeah. And mm-hmm. my dad was there and he was like, "Finally, son, you're good," and all this because it took really, you know, stuff like, like toxic stuff like that and. And then it came to 16 and I got dropped and I just remember thinking, right, well, this is a blessing in disguise. But also, I felt ashamed that I didn't fulfil something that was nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. And I wish at that point I had the confidence, the energy and the power, or probably two years before that, to question why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Because I tell you right now, that answer to that question would have been, I'm actually playing football because I enjoy it. Yeah. I actually enjoy football. But I wasn't enjoying it because I was always looking at this this, this future goal. Yeah. And actually, that wasn't what I wanted. No, and exactly. so I just want her to exactly. question life all the time, question mm. herself and grow all the time. But also, I think it's it's really important to know that it's okay not to know. Yeah. And what I'm doing today and, like you say, um, you know, what you want to be doing tomorrow and next year and all that. But also... Oh, I don't know. Yeah. And actually, that's okay. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, you've got no... Well, you know, how do you not know? Or you must have an interest. Or maybe you should think about it. And it's just like, well, no, I don't really want to think but about that's it. But that's that confidence. <laughs> that's that confidence thing in the questioning. So if she was to question herself today, you know, say she's 15 or whatever, and she questions herself, and she doesn't know, mm. then she can question herself again because she's confident in asking. It doesn't put her off. Because what I was hearing when you were saying that was when I was back in the day and I was having those questions, those moments of question, and I didn't know what I wanted to be, I'd almost stop myself from ever asking that question again. No, yeah. no, it's, it's too scary. I don't want. I don't want to have a problem with this. I don't want someone to hate me for my answers. So I'm mm. not going to question myself. I'm just going to do whatever I'm told to do. So what I want the confidence to be is exactly what you say. That it's okay to not have an answer, 
but yeah. just constantly be reattaching to let's just move and develop and grow and open mind and just mm. see what's out there and enjoy life yeah. I think, exactly I think that's absolutely amazing mm. I think we're coming towards the end now so <laughs> final just, thoughts I think just, just just on your football analogy the irony of the whole thing is you could probably walk into the Sunderland team right now oh. <laughs> I knew there was going to be something as soon as you started talking there Stu I thought you were going to wind me up there it's something to do with Sunderland I probably could make you right well um, everyone please check out Mental Links we'll put the links in the podcast thank you very much and uh, we'll see if uh, John lines up for Sunderland next week <laughs> I very much that. Right. This space. <laughs> Can't run down the street, let alone across the football pitch. But yeah, thanks, yeah. sir. But thanks so much for coming. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's been really interesting. Um, and I've been, I'm really proud of myself. I've taken something away from this podcast that yeah. I've actually sat and listened. And <laughs> <laughs> is that because, is, what's, that, what's the reason behind that? Um, because I just, I just get carried away a lot of the time. Right. And um, Passion. Yeah. But I love to, I love to talk. <laughs> we think what you're doing is amazing. I think you're a great influence uh, in our community, and I think the work that you're doing is nothing short of brilliant. So thanks for so much for sharing it with us. Thanks again for the wonderful Stuart. Always Thank you so much. And the wonderful Lucy. Peace out. Bye bye.